number of years ago, a friend of mine named Carlton was having kidney failure, and his doctors told him that unless he got a new kidney, that he was not going to live long. Now, normally what happens in that situation is that your name goes on a list, and you wait for a donor uh, who matches with you uh, to be able to get a new kidney. But in this case, there was not going to be a list because Carlton's father said, nope, I'm giving him one of mine. And indeed, he was a match, and he gave it, and he donated it to him. And uh, soon after, Carlton recovered, and over 10 years later, he's doing great. You know, father's love for his children is powerful and can be life-changing. That's true for us, and it is also true for Jesus. In Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, we see Jesus when he is preparing to begin his public ministry. And the first thing that he does is he goes and he gets baptized by John the Baptist. And as he is being baptized, or maybe right afterwards, uh, we are told that the heavens opened up, that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and then a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, I'm going to talk more about this actual passage in Luke 3 um, at our men's retreat, but it's always been interesting to me that Jesus receives this affirmation of his Father's love at the very beginning of his ministry. The very beginning. Right? He, God does not, the Father does not wait until Jesus has worked and done all these wonderful things for three years and at the end of this ministry say, oh, great job. I'm really proud of you. I love you. No. It's the very beginning of his ministry. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. We might say that this is the fuel that was needed for ministry and this is in some ways what we all need. And God, divine love is not something that is earned. It is something that is freely given. And being a son of God is not something that comes and goes. It's, it's an identity that roots us and helps us to hold up in the midst of suffering and temptation. And this morning, we're going to talk about the other thing that happened right before Jesus started his public ministry, which is that he was tempted and tested in the wilderness by his adversary, the devil. So if you are able, please stand. We're going to read in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem 
and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word for God's people and the good of the world. Please be seated. Three temptations, three opportunities to be undermined in who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now we're going to look at each of the three temptations uh, in a little more detail, but I want to point out something right here at the beginning. It may seem obvious, but bears mentioning, which is this, that despite this strong temptation, despite Jesus being in a, a probably very weak state, because what had he been doing? He'd been fasting, fasting for 40 days. Have you ever tried to do that? <laughs> Day two, I'm, I'm giving in to anything, right? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and yet he does not give in to temptation. This is important to say because I think when we're tempted, sometimes that question that looms in the back of our minds is this, can I do it? Is it even possible when the devil hits at some of the most sensitive parts of our lives and tempts us? Can I actually hold up under temptation? We're like the, the writer Oscar Wilde who said, I can, I can avoid anything except temptation. But Jesus, being fully human as we are, and he never gave in to temptation. He was like us in every way. He, was, he cried. He felt lonely. He was hungry. He was tired. He felt all these things, and yet he persevered and did not sin. And we can only imagine that it wasn't easy. In fact, it was probably harder for Jesus. Harder. Why? For the Son of God, why is that? Well, I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. <laughs> Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Interesting. I think, think about temptation. It, it does grow. It gets harder. And, but Jesus never gave in to temptation no matter how hard it gets. And so he shows us it is possible. And the Bible promises us that there is a way through temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, it is one thing to hear that promise. It's another thing to see it worked out in someone's life. And so Jesus gives us a tangible example, tangible hope here. Let's look at the first temptation. In verse 3, the devil comes to him. He says, if, if you are the son of God command this stone to become bread. Now that's really interesting how 
he begins, if you are the son of God. Now, there's not a question mark there, but it is a question, isn't it? Are you the son of God? Is God your father? Who, who are you, really? Which is one of Satan's oldest tricks, isn't it? To question the goodness of God, to question our relationship with him. He says, if you're the son of God, prove it. Command the stone to become bread. Now, this is something that Jesus could have done. Couldn't he? After all, he turned water into wine. He could have turned that stone into bread. It, he could have maybe even said, this is how God is providing for me. I'm hungry. I could eat it. Uh, but there was a, a deeper kind of threat in this temptation, which is something like this. What Satan is essentially asking or daring Jesus to do is to do this miracle for yourself. See, the purpose of miracles was to show, to convince, and to convict the world of who Jesus was and of God's power. And Satan is saying, no, do this, do this for yourself. And Jesus' response is in verse 4. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's essentially saying, no, I'm going I'm to trust God for my needs. My miracles are about serving others, and I'm trusting that there is a greater good that can fill me. By the way, that's what we do when we fast. We, uh, we're not saying that food is bad. We are trying to train ourselves to turn to God when we are in need. Because we so often do not do that, do we? So often when we're, we're bored or we're anxious and we feel like we need something, what do we do? We, we go get something to eat. Quick, quick hit. Or we, we turn on the TV or grab the phone and play a little game. Something to, something to fill that void. And yet what fasting does and, and why fasting is a good idea, you don't have to do it, but it's a good idea, is it teaches us to fill that void with God, to go to him instead of to that easy food or drink or whatever. Second temptation. Satan comes again. To you, he says, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, there's truth in this as well, isn't there? Satan is described in the Bible as the ruler of this world. And so when he, he offers to give Jesus power and glory over this world, he's making a somewhat legitimate offer. And here's the thing. This offer represented Jesus' ultimate destiny. In Psalm 2, God tells Jesus that he's going to make the nations his footstool, his inheritance. And so... Satan was, in some ways, offering him that very thing with one big difference. What was the difference? The journey to get there. He was offering Jesus glory without suffering. He's saying, you can, you can bypass the cross. You can bypass suffering and death. Also, you have to worship the devil. There's also that part. And Jesus 
But this was a huge temptation. You can inherit the nations without having to be tortured, crucified, have the full wrath of God poured out on you. I think most of us, we would have taken that easy road. But Jesus responds in verse 8. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It doesn't say that the glory and power is not rightfully his, because it is. What he emphasizes here is that we should love and worship God for proper gain. Jesus had to trust the way of suffering that God had laid out for him was the best way. Tim Keller talks about two competing visions for humanity in this story. There's the vision of Satan, which is your life poured out for me. You get whatever power you want, need, however you can get it, and then serve me with it. Jesus' vision is my life poured out for you. My life given for others. And it begs the question, which will we choose? The way of power or the way of servanthood? And then the third temptation. Verse 9. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here we see a similar theme as the second temptation. Glory. But this time Satan takes Jesus to the most spiritual place, the temple, and encourages him to jump off. Maybe part of that was to, I don't know, show off to those religious leaders who had been questioning Jesus' identity, questioning uh, his legitimacy. But notice something here. Again, going back to that C.S. Lewis quote, each temptation gets a little bit longer. Satan adds a little bit more each time. He ratchets up the tension of the temptation. He's giving a longer argument. And he is, again, sprinkling truth with his lies. In fact, he quotes here Psalm 91. He'll command his angels concerning you. And that's interesting. I think sometimes uh, there's a tendency to place in this passage all of the emphasis on spiritual disciplines. You just fast and pray and, and meditate on Scripture, you will be successful. But here's the thing. Satan knows the Scriptures. And it's not spiritual disciplines by themselves. Your heart has to be in the right place. Without a heart that truly trusts and loves God's spiritual disciplines can be worthless. But Jesus responds, again, from the word of God. He says, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's saying, trust, trust that God knows what he's doing in your life and he doesn't need you testing him to help him to do a better job. And at the end of the story, we read that Satan leaves Jesus until an opportune time. And so Jesus has proven his superiority over evil, over the devil. He's shown that it is possible for us to defeat temptation, to overcome the evil one. And the surface lesson here is in this story is that we need to know God's truth in order to stand up against the lies of the devil. We, we need, when we're being told that we are worthless and unloved, we need the truth 
to combat that. We need to, to know a verse like 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Jesus is a great example of knowing the truth of God's word and using it to fight temptation. All three of his answers come from the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Did you know you could fight the devil with the book of Deuteronomy? A lot of us haven't even read the book of Deuteronomy. But do you know what's interesting about these temptations? What's interesting is that Jesus is not tempted with the normal things that you and I get tempted with, is he? We don't, we don't get tempted with throwing ourselves off a building to prove that we're God or to turn bread or stone into bread. And he doesn't get tempted with the normal things that we get tempted with, lust or anger or fear. That's because Satan didn't just come to tempt Jesus as an example because Jesus didn't just come to be an example. He came to be a substitute, to, to suffer and to die for us. You know, another interesting thing is that the very beginning of the passage, Luke tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, ostensibly to be tempted, to be tested. He didn't just happen to go there. God led him there. And it was all part of God's plan. Jesus' life was leading towards the cross. And had he bypassed the cross, he would only have partially fulfilled prophecy and the work that he needed to do. Had he not suffered, he would not have been a savior. And if we only see this passage as being about an example to live up to, we'll, be, we'll come away depressed because we all give in to temptation, don't we? But here's the thing. Jesus resisted temptation because we couldn't. Jesus passed the test, fulfilled the law because we were unable to. And what stands out to me here is how hard Satan is working to try to get Jesus to serve himself instead of serving us. Now, it's unclear how much Satan knew about God's plan for redemption. If he knew that Jesus was going to die, if he knew he's going to be resurrected, that's unclear. But one thing Satan does know very clearly is that Jesus is God's son and that God loves the world so much that he sent his son to rescue us. And the question that we're answering today that Ricky was going to answer was this. If God is good, why did Jesus have to die? That's a good question. If God is good, why did Jesus have to die? Now, let me first say that I, I, don't, I have no idea who asked that question, so I have no idea the, you know, what their background is or thought process is, so I sort of have to read into the question a little bit to answer it. And the first thing I would say is is asking about if God is good, why did Jesus have to die? Some people have asked, you know, is, did, was there some kind of cosmic child abuse that was happening here? That God was torturing, killing his own son. Couldn't have there been a different way. Well, the first thing we need to see is that this was the plan 
all along for not only God the Father, but for Jesus and for the Holy Spirit as well. The scriptures say that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. That this was something that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the eternal trinity had planned to do before even the creation of the world. It was an agreement among themselves to do so in love. There was no malice involved. There was no child abuse involved. This was God's plan. And the short answer to the question of if God is good, why did he have, why did Jesus have to die is because God is good, Jesus had to die. Because it was the only way that he could save his people. We could not save ourselves. And we were in such rebellion against God, so utterly trapped in our sin and in the snare of the devil that if God had not come to rescue us himself, we would not have been rescued. And that rescue necessitated taking the punishment for our sin because justice demands that sin be paid for. And Jesus was the only man for the job because as a man, he could represent us in death. And as God, he could make satisfaction for sin without the stain of original sin. It had to be God who saved us, but it also had to be a man who saved us. And Jesus is the only one who is both God and man and without sin. And now to go a little deeper, I think what also might have been the question is why did Jesus have to die is couldn't God have saved us some other way? And the answer to that, I guess, is maybe if he had created a different world, if he had created a different universe. But since he created this world and it is run by his character and his will and his laws, there is a natural consequence of this world that says, in the day that we disobey God, we will surely die. Since that is true, we needed someone to die for us in our place. And so did God have to save us? Theoretically, no, but given who he is, yes, yes. And really the question of whether God had to die for us, really that question is, Pretty much the same question is, why did God have to create us? And those of you who are parents, when you thought about having children, you didn't have to have children, but you wanted to. Your, uh, ideally, your love for your spouse so overflowed that you wanted to create more of you so that your love would overflow to them. And now, if your child is in danger and you can give your life in exchange for theirs, you would. Well, it's the same way with God. Maybe he didn't have to create us. He certainly didn't need us for anything. God was completely perfect in and of himself. The three persons of the Trinity uh, existed for all eternity in a perfect dance of love not needing anything, not lacking anything. But in his wisdom, he chose to create us so that his love might overflow to his creation. And he also chose to save us because he loved us that much. 
and in his creation and salvation his glory and perfect love are put on display for us in a way that they would not have been otherwise and so because God is good Jesus had to die and did let's pray Father, we know that there's no greater love than that one should lay down his life for a friend. And how awesome and overwhelming it is that you would consider us your friends. That you would leave the glory and the riches of heaven to come and to be born in a stable. To give, to give up your power for a time to go through the humiliation of being born under the law and the humiliation and suffering of the cross. But having gone through that humiliation, Lord Jesus, you have now been exalted to the highest place that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord in heaven and earth. that your atonement, your works on our behalf are beautiful and mysterious. There are some things that we do not fully understand, but we do understand how much it takes for you to love us in some ways. Thank you for that. And may we love one another with the kind of love that we have been loved. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.